All right, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We're going to be in Judges chapter 15. Uh, Judges chapter 15 is where we will be uh, as you wrap up your time of prayer. And uh, just uh, glad we could do that uh, as a community, as a people here. Again, Judges 15, the seventh book in the Bible, if you're not familiar with it, in the Old Testament. Uh, we'll be looking at a story tonight as we continue our series uh, where we've been teaching through this verse. Really, the, the whole series is built around the verse. You just heard it. Uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, that we would hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Uh, and so what we've said throughout the series is that part of the reason we don't grow in our faith is because we have learned somewhere along the way that we're not supposed to hate anything, including our sin, including wickedness, including the evil inside of us. And because of that, because we don't have this hate toward that, we're not actually able to move forward. And so what God calls us to do is not to hate one another, but rather to hate the evil that is with inside of us. Uh, and the metaphor we've been using, I'll use it for a third time this week, is this, that sin is a virus that makes us sick, and Jesus is the great physician that makes makes us whole. Uh, and so what we've been talking about is the idea that a lot of times with sin, we think of guilt, we think of law, we think of how much we owe God, like we owe him something we can never pay him back, or we're guilty in God's courtroom, and that is all true. But one of the metaphors the Bible is going to use is the idea that sin is like a virus that makes us sick. It actually twists us up in various ways. And I think about it over this the last couple of years. Um, I, I, we, we've all fallen into this unique thing, and maybe we all did it before the pandemic, but really during the pandemic, maybe did you ever find yourself during the pandemic like you coughed, and then you feel like you had to justify why you coughed? Did you do, I, I did that all the time. I'm like, <coughs> oh no, it's because I, I tried to swallow an Oreo wrong. You know, like it was always that, like, like every time I'd cough or every time I'd sneeze, I'd be like, it's, it's allergies. They're like, it's not allergies. She's like, I have special allergies, right? Like, like I just like constantly was in denial that I was sick because that's the thing over the last two years. It's like, if you're sick, it's not just, oh, bummer, you're sick. It's like, get away from me forever, right? Like that's kind of how it went. And so we kind of found ourselves not just like justifying why we're sneezing or coughing, but like in full-on denial that we were ever sick. And again, maybe you never did this, but I definitely did this. And here's what happens. When we're in full-on denial that we're ever sick, we never actually get better. And so what I do is I'd be like, it's allergies. And then I'd be like sneezing all night. My wife's like, it's not allergies. I'm like, yes, it is. And I never got better. And here's what I've learned. When I am in denial about reality, I never actually get better. When I deny reality, when I just like pretend the things that are there aren't actually there, I never actually get better in my life. And here's why we got to talk about that tonight. Because tonight I want to talk about a subject that we're all just really good at denying as an issue. Like it's like the one thing we love to just deny is even a problem or an issue in any way. And if anyone ever brings up like, no, not me, I, I would never struggle with such a thing. Listen, tonight, I just want to be blunt and talk to you as adults about sex. And I want to talk to you about sexual sin. And I want to talk to you about sexuality. I want to talk to you about this thing in our life that we all just like to pretend like, yeah, I'm so glad my friend is here. She needs to hear this sermon, right? But like we, like we love to do that. We love to be like, yeah, that person over there definitely, not me. I, I used to struggle, never struggled, not in like the last hundred years. You know, like we just love to do that. We love to pretend this is a non-issue for us. But again, I'll go back to the principle. If you deny reality, you will never get better. And so in this room tonight, I want to talk about sex, and I don't want to like, like make it like sexual like temptation or like lust. I don't want to like use words that like don't like sound soft, but actually aren't actually reality. Like tonight, I just want to talk to you bluntly about sex. I want to talk to you about sexual sin. I want to talk to you about this thing that has potential to just destroy you, because here's what I know, and here's what you know is true too, that there is probably nothing that can blow your life up as quickly as sex. 
But like, this is all human history. Like all human history is like this king who's like, I'm going to be king. And then he wants to go with this woman. He's like, I'll give it all up. And he walks away. Like this is the story of human history uh, of a dad and a husband who's married and has these kids. And some of you have walked this story and he walks away for it for momentary pleasure. Like this is the story in human history, not just for men. Like let's not confuse ourselves for women as well. For all of us in this room, sex is this thing that can just like blow our lives up. And yet we don't want to talk about it. We're just kind of like the thing you're not supposed to talk about in church is sex and money. But the thing I'm struggling with the most is sex and money, right? Like we just like push it away. We're like, pastor, you stay out of my life. Please just go talk about like rapture views, right? But, but, but here's the thing. If we don't talk about it in church, we're doomed. And here's why. Like, I don't know if you've noticed how like our culture is very unhelpful on the subject of sex. Like I'll make two observations. Number one, our culture is weirdly obsessed with sex. So it's like every movie, every Instagram account, every song, it's all about sex all the time. And if it's not about sex, it's like intentionally like, we're not talking about sex this time, right? Like it's all about sex. It's like this weird obsession. And then here's what I also observe. Like our culture is wildly confused about sex. Our culture doesn't know what to believe. On the one hand, sex is the most important thing about you and you and your sexuality and you having sex is the most important thing. And at the same time, sex is no big deal and no one should even think about it. Like this, there's this wild confusion about what sex is. Is it good? Is it bad? Is pornography right or wrong? Or all the, like our, our culture just has no consensus on this. So here's the problem. If the church does not talk about sex, you are left to a whims of a culture that has lost its mind on sex. So tonight, we're gonna talk about sex. We're gonna talk about sexuality. We're gonna talk about sexual sin. Not because I'm just like trying to like make you feel guilty or ashamed, or this is just like the thing I love to talk about. It's just like we live in a world that is upside down on this thing. And if nothing else, I hope tonight will start to set you right side up. Can I just give you three claims the Bible is gonna make about sex? Number one, sex is a good thing. It's a good thing. Like if you've grown up in a culture, even a Christian culture that tells you sex is dirty and wrong and bad and you should never have it or never think about it, even the desire for it makes you a wicked, awful, terrible person, can I just free you from that? The Bible doesn't teach that. Like the Bible does not teach that. Like the Bible teaches that sex is a good thing. In fact, the Bible teaches that sex is a gift. Like in other words, have you ever thought about the fact that God could have had human beings reproduce in any other way, but he's like, hey, check this one out, right? Like that's what he did. This was God's idea. Like this is God's thing. He's like, this is how you get to have babies. Like we could have babies in any other way. And God's like, you are gonna love this. It was God's idea. And then like God's idea, you think of like Adam and Eve in the garden. It wasn't like they started to have sex and God was like, what? Are they, what? what? Like God wasn't taken aback by that. He was like, this is what I made. This is on purpose. This is a gift. And so again, I'm gonna talk about where sex sits and where it goes and where it doesn't and what it means and what's right and wrong and all of that. But I want us to start with this, the assumption that sex is a gift. It's good. It's God's idea. And for us to talk about it in church is actually an honoring thing to our Lord rather than this weird, creepy thing that we should try to avoid. Here's the metaphor I've used before. You've probably heard it somewhere else too, that sex is a lot like fire. Um, and I think this is one of the best metaphors for sex, um, that when it is in the right context and controlled, it provides warmth and light. So you think of like a fireplace, like when a fire is in there, it provides light to the room, it provides warmth. You, you think of a torch that you're holding or an oven that's cooking something, right? There's this fire and it's providing warmth and light because it's in the proper context. But then the opposite is true too. Like when it's in the wrong context, when it's out of context and out of control, it destroys everything in its path. 
right? So when sex is in the right context, which biblically means a marriage between one man, one woman forever in a covenant where they're committed to each other in faithfulness, when it's in that context, it's this beautiful thing that brings light and heat. And at the same time, when sex is found out of that context, it can destroy, it can harm. And some of you know this. Some of you know this because sex has actually caused trauma and pain in your life. Some of you know this because it's caused heartache and betrayal in your life. Some of you know what it is like for a man to use you just for sex. Some of you know what it is like to be so addicted to pornography that it is tearing you apart inside, but you don't feel like you could possibly ever be free. Like, listen, when we talk about sex, we're not talking about some casual decision you make in some periphery of your life. We are talking about something that is right at the core of you, something that God wired you to want. Just like you need sleep and just like you need food and just like you need water, this is something God has wired into you. It's not just something you get to ignore and pretend doesn't exist. It's not like classical music. You can't be like, I don't like classical music. Don't listen to it. Don't have time for it. Sex, don't want to think about it. Don't have time for it. Like, it doesn't work that way. It's part of you. In fact, I want to put it to you this way, that sex is an appetite we manage, not a problem we solve. Like, I need you to know your sexuality is not a problem you just need to solve. It's something you manage. It's something that God has given to you. And I want to see tonight what happens in the story of Samson, this story in the book of Judges. So again, Judges 15, if you have your Bibles, I want you to see this story of someone who fails to manage their sexual appetite. And I want you to see what happens in his life. And I hope this is instructive. I hope it's encouraging. And I hope it gives us a perspective we can walk away with. So again, Judges chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be on the screen. Here's what it says. Judges 15, 20 says, Samson. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Now we're actually jumping midway into the story of Samson. And if you don't, if you've never actually sat down and read Judges 14, 15, and 16, you've never read the whole story of Samson, you should do it because it's wild. This guy has been given by God this supernatural kind of strength. Here's the deal for Samson. I know it doesn't make sense to you, but it made sense to him. You never cut your hair, you'll be Superman. That's the deal for Samson. And he doesn't cut his hair and he's Superman. It talks about like he goes in and he kills like a thousand people with a jawbone of a donkey. And he goes and he kills them like he has super strength. At one point he gets so mad at some people that he ties torches to the tails of 300 foxes and sends it into a village and it burns it down. Just think about that for a moment. This is one of the craziest stories in the Bible. And yet in the midst of this like super complex, not always good, not always bad, just kind of odd individual, you have this line right here in the beginning of their chapter tonight, 15 verse 20. It says, Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. For two decades, here's what Samson did. He did exactly what God told him to do. God gave Samson superhuman strength, not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of his people, which is, by the way, this is off topic, but the whole reason God gifts you with anything he gifts you in your life is not for your sake, it's for the sake of his people. And so this is what Samson does. He goes, I'm going to use the strength to rule God's people. And for 20 years, like some of you in this room have not been alive for 20 years, 20 years, he rules over God's people. He is doing everything right. He is being the right person, doing the right thing. And yet by the end of this chapter, his entire life will be destroyed and he will be dead. And here's the question tonight. How in the world does this guy go down a road that destroys him within the context of one chapter? How is it that this guy who is ruling God's people, who's doing everything right, everything is going well, how does he get into this bad place? Because here's what we need to talk about tonight. Um, Samson, in this moment of the story, is doing everything right. And yet sexual sin is going to destroy him. And here's the first point I want to make tonight. I think some of us need to recognize that sexual sin is not an issue for bad people. 
Some of you have convinced yourself that sexual sin is an issue for bad people, for those types of people, for wicked, awful, terrible, pagan, non-believing people who aren't good people like you are. But here's what you need to know. Sex is not, sexual sin is not an issue for bad people. Sexual sin is an issue for all people, everyone. Like, I just need to free someone from the idea tonight that sexual sin is for someone else, but you shouldn't have to deal with it. Because some of you grew up in church and loved Jesus. Some of you are leaders. Some of you are on our prayer team or on our worship team or in our leadership somewhere here at this church. Some of you have convinced yourself that you are not the type of person who should struggle with sexual sin. And yet, here's what I need you to know. You are. I actually want to let some of you know that your struggle with sexual sin is normal. It's normal. And when I say normal, I don't mean that it's good. I don't mean it's no big deal, so shrug it off and just move on and do whatever sexual sin you want. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it's normal. Sexual sin isn't for some kind of bad person out there. It's for all people. We all struggle with it. Just because you're a leader or have been a Christian since you were young or fallen in love with Jesus like never before or are leading here at this church doesn't mean you couldn't possibly struggle with sexual sin. Like, I just want to free someone from that. Like, can I just stand here and tell you that pornography is part of my history? And Lord willing, it stays part of my history, but I just don't want to stand here and pretend like a guy like me who's been following Jesus since I'm young couldn't possibly have fallen into that. I did. And I still love Jesus. And I was following after him and loving him and worshiping him, and yet this is the struggle in my life. Like, I just don't want to stand here as a pastor and pretend I could never sin sexually in such a way that destroys my wife, my children, and my ministry. Like, that's true for me. And I want you to know that's true for you too. So if somehow you've set it up as like, I could never tell anyone about my sexual sin because if I do, they won't think I'm a solid Christian. Can we all just give each other freedom to say you can be a solid Christian and still have a deep, dark struggle that you're wrestling through? Like, I just need you to know that. And actually the only person I'm concerned about in this room isn't the person who's struggling with their sexual sin. It is the person who has deluded themselves into thinking that could never be a problem for them. In fact, here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 10. It says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Like if you have convinced yourself that this could never be a struggle for someone like you, that is a dangerous and deceptive place to be. Again, I just want to free us all to understand tonight, this isn't some bad, wicked, awful person problem. This is a problem in the church. And you need to know that the person sitting to your right and sitting to your left has dealt with this, even if they've never opened their mouth and told you about that struggle. It goes on this way in verse 16. It says, one day, one day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. He went to spend the night with her. So you got like Samson for two decades, he's running Israel for two decades. He's like, God, I will use the gifts you have given me to serve your people and to lead them well. I'm going to do that. And then suddenly in verse 16, it seems like out of nowhere, one day Samson went to Gaza and he saw a prostitute and he went and spent the night with her. Here's what happens. Samson, everything is going well. He is leading well. He is the type of person that no one thinks would ever struggle with sexual sin. And then somehow he gets it in his mind to go to Gaza. Now, the place where Samson lives and the place where Gaza is are 25 miles apart. So you got to understand this. It's not like he went next door to a prostitute. He traveled to somewhere to see a prostitute. And if you go on the Google machine and type in 25 miles, how many steps, here's what you'll learn. It is 56,300 steps. It's impressive, right? 56,300 steps. 56,300 of these. 56,300 moments where Samson could have stopped and go, whoa, 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 whoa. I do not want to do this. 56,300 moments where Samson is going this direction. He could have put his foot in the ground and gone a different direction, but Samson instead takes every single one of the 56,300 steps. And here's what I need you to know tonight, that Samson did not wreck his life all at once. He didn't. 
He wrecked his life one step at a time. That's how he destroyed himself. See, everyone thinks what happens is someday the husband in the family wakes up and just decides to have an affair and blows up his whole life. Very rarely does that happen. See, all of us think that like suddenly, you just suddenly get addicted to some kind of sexual sin and you can't get out of it. It rarely happens that way. Sexual sin rarely happens all at once. It happens one step at a time, over and over and over again. You just walk closer and closer and deeper and deeper into this thing that you never wanted to be a part of. But let me get more specific, because him taking steps is obviously an analogy. It's an image, a picture, a metaphor. But what really happened here is this, that Samson wrecked his life one lie at a time, one deceit at a time, one falsehood he believed at a time. And I want to show you five of those falsehoods tonight. And here's my hope. My hope is that if you have come to believe any of these five things I'm about to teach on tonight, that you would plant your foot in the ground and turn a different direction tonight. My hope is that you would recognize any lies that the enemy has put into your mind and into your heart and that you would reject those lies and instead that you would hate those lies and instead cling to the truth of God's word. Here's what it says in verse two. It says, the people of God were told Samson is here. So remember what happened. Samson is here. He goes 25 miles away to Gaza because he thinks I'm gonna go see a prostitute over there. Now, why didn't Samson just go see a prostitute in his own town? This is easy. Like the reason he didn't go to see a prostitute in his own town is because he didn't want his neighbors, family, and friends to see. He wanted to go to a place where he would never be found out. So he goes to Gaza. But then what you can see here in verse two is that the people of Gaza are like, oh yeah, that's Samson. We see him. We know exactly who that is. So here's lie number one. Lie number one for your sexual sin is that nobody is ever going to find out. And some of you have just bought in fully to, this is my secret, no one's ever gonna find out, no one's ever gonna know, I've covered up my tracks, she's never gonna know, he's never gonna know, no one's ever gonna know what goes on on my phone, on my computer late at night, no one's ever gonna know what goes on, no one ever knows that I cheated with her, no one ever knows that I cheated with him, no one's ever gonna know. And here's what I want you to know. The odds are someone knows. Someone somewhere knows. Or even worse, Someone, someone, somewhere is, could find out. And do you know what kind of stressful life it creates when your entire life is built around hiding a certain part of your life? Do you know the reason why some of us are buried in anxiety and stress is because we're trying to hide certain parts of our life that we don't want anyone to see? And here's what Samson's doing. Samson is buying into this lie that I'll go over to Gaza and I'll go over to Gaza because no one's ever gonna find out about my sexual sin. And he's wrong. He's bought into a lie because people know. But then let's even play this game. Let's give in to your assumption. No one's ever going to find out. My sexual sin is okay because I can actually keep this a secret until I die. Here's the problem. Even if you keep it a secret until the day you die, it is still hurting someone. It's hurting you. Like you are the one being harmed. Like I've shared this before. Like the journey for me over the last couple of years, like since I hit 30 was like, wow, like I'm no longer this young man who can eat anything I want and not exercise anymore. I've got to deal with, you know, my body, right? And so I got to do this. And so I've like been on this track of not like a vanity project, but like try not to die before my children get married, right? Like that's the goal. You laugh, but it's true. Like this is the goal. And so I've learned like, okay, exercise, fitness, I can get into that. But the thing that just wrecks me every time is my nutrition and like trying to eat healthy. And I don't know about you, but like there's some downfalls for all of us when it comes to nutrition, but my big downfall is nothing other than cookie dough, okay? Like I love cookie dough. I'm not just like any cookie dough. I love the Toll House cookie dough. You know the Toll House cookie dough that comes in the little tub? You just open up, thunk, right? And then you just dip your finger. I don't even use the spoon. It's just so gnarly. And so here's what happens. 
My wife buys the Toll House cookie doughs because she has the spiritual gift of hospitality. And so when people come over, she throws cookies in. And I'm like, this person's vegan. They won't eat those cookies. She like, doesn't matter. We're making cookies. It makes the house smell nice, right? So she makes cookies, right? And so we have the Toll House cookie dough in our fridge. And so here's what happens. When I go to eat out of it and she's there, she looks at me and goes, those aren't for you. It's for our guests when they come. And then I get frustrated. And then she goes to bed and I sneak downstairs. <laughs> and I go into the fridge and I open it up. And I thunk, right? It's so satisfying. And then I eat it. And I'm like, she'll never know. Now the truth is she knows, right? She goes in the next day to make cookies and she sees finger marks in there, right? Like she knows. I'm like, it was the children, right? But, but, but here's the deal. Let's say there's some magical world where she never finds out that I have been eating the cookie doughs. Like the calories still count, right? I don't get to be like, she doesn't know. So these are magic calories, right? No, like I still, it still affects me. And I want to say this about your sexual sin. Like if you walk in this kind of thing, no one's ever going to find out. It still impacts you. It still matters in your life. It still changes you. Like if you're hooked on pornography, I want you to know, no one may ever find out and it will shape the way you see sex in your marriage someday. Like I want you to know that if you have cheated on someone, if you're walking in some kind of deceitful double life, they may never find out, but it will change your soul, your mind, your strength, your body. It'll change the way you see people. I want us to know that Samson buys into this idea no one's ever going to find out, and he happens to be wrong. But even if he was right and no one found out, it still impacts Samson. I want you to see this here. It goes on this way in the back half of verse 2. So, so they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him. So Samson's in the city. He's with a prostitute all night, and they're like, we're going to get him. So they surround him all night by the city gate, and they made no move during the night, saying, at dawn, we're going to kill him. And then Samson lay there until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gates, together with the two posts, tore them loose, and bore it all, and he lifted it on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. What an absolutely bizarre choice by Samson. He is sleeping with a prostitute. He wakes up. He's like, I am in danger. You know what I'll do? I will go pick up the city gates, right? Carry them over my head. These city gates, historians tell us, is like 700 pounds. Like the guy is like deadlifting, shoulder pressing, 700 pounds and walking up a hill. That's how strong he is, but it's also how foolish he is. People are literally trying to kill him. And he's like, let's see how much I can lift, right? Like, this is so foolish and so silly because he doesn't think he can get hurt. He thinks he can handle it. And that's lie number two. Lie number two is I can handle it. Lie number two is I got this thing. It's okay. Like a little sexual sin in my life, a little flirting on the edge of this. I can handle it. I can do it. It's no big deal to me. That's the lie some of us believe. It's like from time to time, I'll have a night where there's not a lot going on. And I'll tell my wife, like, I'm going to read tonight. And she always knows, okay, he's going to read. But this also means something else. It means I'm going to make a big pot of coffee and just sit there and sip it all night. And then I'm going to go to bed. And she's like, you know, that's going to keep you up all night. And I'm like, no, no, listen, that may be for you mere mortals, but I drink enough coffee that I'm good, right? I got this thing. And she's like, oh my gosh, like she knows, right? And so I'm sitting there sipping my coffee. I'm like, this won't affect me. This won't bother me. This won't be a problem. And then it's four in the morning and I'm just like, ah, (laughs) what happened? I bought into the idea that it doesn't impact me, but it does. It does. And here's the tragedy. Some of you have convinced yourselves that there's sexual sin in your life and it's just a little bit and it doesn't really impact you and it's not a big deal. So why should we even talk about this? Like some of you have convinced yourself that you can follow people on social media that post pictures of themselves mostly naked and it's no big deal. It doesn't affect you at all. It's no big deal. It's just social media. 
just a fitness account, just something. It's not really that real thing. It's just, it's just no, mostly naked people. Like, it doesn't affect me at all. Some of you watch TV shows or movies, and it's filled with nudity and sexuality. And you're just like, well, I just really love the narrative, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't stop watching. And for me to get up here and say, actually, it does affect you, and maybe there are certain shows you shouldn't watch, sounds fundamentalist to some of you. It sounds like I'm a preacher out of like 1920, who's like, don't you ever watch the TV. But here's the deal. You turning off social media or media or television or movies that are going to tempt you sexually isn't fundamentalist, it's just wise. And some of you have bought into the idea that if you ever turn something off because it's actually tempting you, it means you're weak. No, it means you're wise. It means you're thoughtful. It means you're following Jesus. Some of you have done this. You go to parties and you're like, every time I go to a party, I end up hooking up with someone. But tonight, I think I can handle it. No, you can't. If that's your history, you cannot. Like, let me speak to those of you in a relationship. Like, I can't tell you how many people are in a relationship are like, I don't know what happens. Every time I invite him over to my apartment, we're all alone, we're watching Netflix, and then things happen, and then I, I don't know, we cross lines. We all get this, right? And yet what happens is we just have this idea, like, I can handle it. I got it. It's no big deal. I can walk right up to the line, and it's not going to torch me. But here's what the Bible says. It says an entirely different thing, 1 Corinthians 6. It doesn't say hang around. It says flee from sexual immorality. Like, run away. You can't actually handle it. You know what? Like, I'd love to give a sermon where I'm like, you can do it. You are strong enough. You can beat this addiction on your own. You can stand up to it. You've got it all on your own. Sex has nothing on you. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible is going to tell us that sexuality actually has the potential to wreck your life, so you need to run from it. You need to flee from it. And here's the deal. With everything I just named, whether it's movies or TV shows or anything else, like, I'm not going to tell you where the line is. I've shared this before. I'm just concerned some of us have no line because we've come to convince lines are legalism and so we don't have any line. But my question for you is this, do you have any line? Like if pornography is a major issue, why in the world have you not spent like three bucks a month on a blocker on your phone? Like why wouldn't you at least put that layer in? And I'm not saying that'll solve your problem. You'll still struggle with things, but why wouldn't you draw that line? Like for some of you, you just need to make a decision. I'm not going to be alone with someone of the opposite gender in my apartment anymore. Because every time that happens, I go down this road and I know he's my boyfriend and I know I care about him and I know it's good, but I just got to not do that anymore. Again, I'm not saying that has to be your line. I'm just asking, do you have one? For some of you on social media, you just need to draw the line. I'm not going to follow these kinds of people. I'm not going to text people late at night anymore. I'm not going to hang out with this person alone anymore. I'm not going to watch that show. Why? Because some of you have bought into the lie that you can handle it and you cannot handle it. And it's not because you're weak or you're pathetic or you don't have it or you're not a good enough Christian. It is because sexual sin has the capacity to destroy you. Jesus knows that. Paul knows that. Samson is about to learn that. And I want you to internalize the fact that my job when I see sexual sin is not to be like, I got this thing. It is to run. It is to choose to go in the opposite direction. It goes this way in verse four. It says, sometime later, he fell in love with a woman. So now he's falling in love with a totally different woman. It's not the prostitute, totally different person. In the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah, the rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing him or showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So like in other words, remember how I talked about like his hair grows, now he's Superman? Like that's the source of his strength. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Gentlemen, if you are ever in a relationship and anyone says that to you, I'm sorry, it's just in the Bible. Like that sentence is there like, no, run away. That's what Samson should do. He should be like, excuse me, what did you just ask me? Like, he should be like, you, what? But that's not what he does. 
Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I will become as weak as any other man. Like he's just messing with her. He's playing with her. He's toying with her here. He thinks he can just kind of do this because he's like, I'm not going to get hurt. She can't hurt me. I'm Superman. I got the long hair, super, superhuman strength. God's spirit is on me. I'm good. And he bought into line number three. And here's line number three. Now line number three is I can't be hurt because it isn't hurting anyone. It's not hurting anyone. This is the lie we buy into with sexual sin. We buy into the idea that pornography is not hurting anyone. Can I just remind you, pornography hurts all kinds of people. Pornography hurts women who are in the pornography business, who have been sucked in there for some of them, many of them, most of them, out of no desire to do that for a living, but because of all kinds of abuse, harm, and trauma. Pornography harms them. Pornography harms you. It harms people who are addicted to it and you get so deep and dark into it that your body actually starts to morph to it. Your brain actually starts to, to bend toward it. It harms your future marriage. Listen, I, I told you this was like a struggle in my life. And so I don't want to pretend like somehow it's like crazy that you would have this addiction. I just want you to know that if you are a young person who is unmarried, who is constantly and regularly viewing pornography, I want you to know you have a distorted vision of what sex will look like in your marriage. And this will harm your marriage someday. This is men and women. We used to pretend pornography was only a man issue. It is a woman issue. I need to say that out loud because any women in this room think you're just so weird and no one's like you. It is a male issue. It is a female issue. It is an all of us issue. And anytime I go into that, I can pretend it's not hurting anyone, but it's hurting me. It's hurting people in the industry. And it is likely hurting my future spouse. Listen, the idea of cheating doesn't hurt anyone if they don't find out. Like it absolutely hurts the person you cheated with, the person you cheated on, it hurts you like emotional entanglement, even premarital sex and relationships where it's outside of the context of marriage. This idea that, well, we all agreed to it, so it's fine, it's no big deal. It still brings harm. So here's what Samson bought into the idea of, this can't harm me. And I'm terrified that some of you have the idea that sex can't harm you. It's never gonna do anything. It's never gonna create problems. It is, it will, it does, it always does. So here's what happens in the rest of the story. Samson continues to go back and forth with Delilah and Delilah tries to capture him and he bursts through the bowstrings and he bursts through these ropes they put on him and he's just messing with them and Delilah starts to get frustrated and says, can you please just tell me how can I overcome you? How can I tie you? How can I get rid of this superhuman strength you have? And eventually Samson gets asked this over and over and over again. I wanna show you verse 16 here. Verse 16 says, with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So here's what happens. She keeps asking. She keeps wearing him down. You know what keeps happening? They try to tie him up in the middle of the night, and then he bursts through, and he fights everyone off, but he keeps getting woken up in the middle of the night, which as a dad of a three-month-old, I understand. It drives you crazy. It wears you down. It becomes like a problem in your life and in your body. But here's what I want to point out in this story, and I think this is such an important part for all of us. Um, I want to point out line number four, because here's what happens for Samson. Um, Samson is giving in to Delilah. He is giving in to the sexual impulse. He is giving in to the sin. He is giving into it, but it's not because of sex. Like it's actually because he's exhausted and he's tired. It says she was such nagging. She prodded him day after day until he was sick to death. Like in other words, there's this external circumstance, this other thing other than sex that is leading him into sexual sin. And here's line number four is that sexual sin is always about sex. And here's what I hope you've realized at this point in your life. Your sexual sin is not all about sex. 
Now, this might sound so strange to you because some of us have bought into the idea of, well, the problem is I'm young, I have hormones, and there's sexual content out there. And when hormones and sexual content, it's like gasoline and a lighter, boom, right? Like, that's what you think it is. And I want you to know that's a piece of the puzzle, but it is a small piece of the puzzle. I want you to know that if you are walking in long-term, habitual, unwanted sexual behavior, it is about far more than the fact that there are sexualized images out there and hormones in here. Like, I want you to know that sometimes your sexual sin is not about your sexual sin. I want you to know that sometimes your sexual sin is about hunger and exhaustion. So you're not actually nourishing your body. You're not actually resting. You're not actually taking care of your body. And do you know that you tend to give in to your sexual sin, your sexual addictions, when you are exhausted and tired at the end of your rope, not when you're well-rested? That's why some of you struggle so much more late at night than you do in the morning. You don't tend to wake up in the morning and be like, how can I wreck my life today, right? You do that late at night. Why? Because you're exhausted. You're hungry. You're not taking care of your body. You're somehow abusing or harming your body. Listen, sometimes your sexual sin is about hunger and exhaustion. Sometimes it's about perfectionism and insecurity. So it's like some of you have this like perfectionist streak in you or this thing you have where you always have to be perfect and you always have to have it together. You always have to have the best answers and the right things and everything in your life. You have to be dressed perfectly, look perfectly, talk perfectly. But then you just know internally that's not you, right? Like if you're a perfectionist, you've come to the place, right, where you admit that you're not actually perfect. And so what do you do when your persona is I'm perfect, but then internally you don't know you're perfect. You know you're not perfect, right? What happens? You start to be filled with anxiety and stress because you know that's not who you are. And so how do we medicate anxiety and stress? Well, there's a lot of drugs of choice. You use pills, you use alcohol, you use pornography, you can use work. You can use all sorts of things to numb that pain inside. So here's what I want us to recognize, that sometimes this perfectionism and insecurity that you're not quite good enough is actually the driver of your sexual sin. Next thing I want you to know, sometimes your sexual sin is about loneliness and rejection. And so for some of you, like you've been rejected in life. You've been rejected by a guy. You've been rejected by a girl. And let's just confess, like that's the worst. Like it is the worst to be turned down by someone romantically. It is the worst, gentlemen, to be put in the friend zone. In fact, some of you have actually been put in the brother zone, right? It's the worst zone, right? You're like, oh, I don't want to be a brother. You know, like, like, like you've just felt that rejection and that sting and that pain. And the ladies, it's the same way. Like you've gone through that feeling of rejection and pain. And then you know it's tragic. And some of us haven't actually put these dots together. I hope you might tonight. Some of you have walked through rejection and pain, but realized the people in the pornographic video can't reject you. And so you go there because they can't say no. And so what you're actually doing is you're dealing with a wound that's over here by doing something over here. And it's never actually going to heal the wound. It's just going to create more wounds. Again, sometimes my sexual sin is about sex, but other times it's about loneliness and rejection. Sometimes it's about anger and resentment. Like sometimes you're just mad at your parents or mad at the world or mad at an injustice or mad at something. And so instead of using that anger and rage to work through that and actually deal with it, you channel that into your sexual addiction of choice. And your sex life and your sexual fantasy gets more violent and more angry and more cruel because you're channeling something that can never actually be solved through it. But like, listen, I want you to know that sometimes your sexual sin is about childhood wounds. Like your dad walked out. Your mom wanted nothing to do with you. Or, or maybe you never knew your dad or maybe you wish you never did. Because what actually happened all of childhood is you felt completely unwanted. And so actually your sexual sin is just your way of trying to feel wanted by something that can never actually heal that wound. And listen, by the time you're an adult, what you should be doing is looking back on your childhood, not to just blame your parents, but to say, okay, what wounds, what insecurities started coming up? What things happened in childhood that I got to work through? Because if you don't do that, you're going to walk in sin and not even realize what patterns you're playing out. And then finally, just most heavily, can I just say, sometimes your sexual sin is about trauma and abuse. And so like something happened to you that you didn't deserve or earn, that was foul and against the heart of God. Someone took advantage of you, harmed you, abused you in some kind of way. 
But then the tragedy is sometimes we can't deal with that. So we actually end up going back to the place of our wounding over and over and over again. And so here's what I'm trying to do with this list. I'm not trying to say, okay, because of these things, your sexual sin is no big deal. It's not your fault. Don't worry about it. What I'm trying to say is that when I recognize that my sexual sin isn't just about sex, it's about these things. I go to the actual physician who can heal me rather than my sexual sin of choice. I go to Jesus. And if this is your story at all, if this is your story right now, any one of these things, I want you to run to your Savior because he can actually bring healing. He's the one who can actually make you whole. And if you keep running to your sexual sin of choice, it'll never make you whole. So, so this is some heavy stuff, and I want to give two really specific calls to you. If you would say, you know what, some of this stuff is me, especially the further down on this list we go. Um, two invitations. Number one, um, I, I read a book last year um, that I think is helpful. And for some of you, books are like a way of introducing yourself to a topic. I want to show you this book by Jay Stringer. It's called Unwanted. Uh, and he talks about unwanted sexual behavior of any kind. And he's a Christian. He's a pastor. He's a counselor. And he talks through, okay, how do we take these wounds? And instead of just like feeling ashamed or embarrassed about them, how do we actually bring them to healing through Jesus Christ? And so I want to invite you to read this. Uh, if that's your thing, if you love reading books, I want to invite you into this. Um, I got to be honest with you. This is like a PG-13 our book, okay? It is not like a book for the faint of heart. And yet I would just say this to you. If you've just been walking and unsuccessful, kind of trying to overcome some sexual sin, you got to take drastic steps. And so maybe it's this book. I just want to give you another invitation. Um, if you have been trying for a year or more to overcome sexual sin that is unwanted in your life and has become habitual, it has become perhaps even an addiction, I just don't think you have any chance doing this on your own. And I want you to lean into someone who can help. And when I say someone who can help, um, friends are good, community is good, small groups and Bible studies, accountability partners. But I think some of the best stuff you can do is deal with some of the things on that list I just named in professional counseling. And I'm saying that not because you're the worst or you're bad. Counselors are like doctors for our soul. If you've somehow been convinced that weak people go to counseling, you don't understand. I've gone to counseling. I love when I've gone to counseling. Some of the best, strongest Christians I know go to counseling. And I want to invite you to do that. And so here's a few ways. Uh, if you just want to come talk to us, we have Christian counselors we know through this church who love Jesus and are professionals and can help you. If you don't feel comfortable walking up and talking to me, you can go to our prayer wall right after. And everyone's going to be writing prayers. And if you just want to write your first name, your phone number, and I need help, someone will text you. We'll never even know who you are, but we can get you information so you can call the counselor on your own. You can talk to us, you can DM us, you can let us know, but if you have been waging this war on your own and you feel like you're losing, I think it's time to bring in reinforcements. I think it's time to deal with the deeper heart stuff. And again, if you've been convinced it's just, well, I'm hormonal, I'm young, I'm a college student, I'm a young adult, there's sexual stuff out there, you have thought so shallow on your problem when it goes so much deeper than that. So it goes on this way in verse 17. He told her everything. Samson gives in. He tells her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to my God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told, he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more as he has told me everything. So the rulers and the Philistines returned with silver in their hands. And after putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair. And so they began to subdue him and his strength left him. And then she called out, Samson, the Philistines are on you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I will get out of bed and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Verse 21, then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding grain in the prison. 
Again, Samson thinks it's all a game. He thinks it's all easy. He thinks it's no big deal. Sex can't harm me. Sexual sin can't harm me. I'm Superman. I can do whatever I want. And here's the fifth and final lie he bought into. Number five, my lust will never cost me. And I just fear that so many young people think my lust will never cost me. It'll never cost me my spiritual fervor. It'll never cost me my ministry. It'll never cost me my, my boyfriend or girlfriend. It'll never cost me my marriage or my kids someday. Listen, if you have kind of bought into the idea that I'm young and struggling with lust, but someday I'll be married and have like a wife and kids or a husband and kids and my sexual sin will go away, you have deceived yourself. It is time, it is now to deal with this before it costs you, before it robs from you. Samson has his eyes gouged out. He is in prison to this thing. And I think that's this perfect metaphor for what happens when we don't start to hate our sexual sin, when we just go to peace with it. When we don't make war with it, we make peace with it. When he's gouged out, he can't see. He's enslaved to something that he never wanted to be enslaved to. So here's this old quote. Maybe you've heard it before. I want you to hear it again tonight. That sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and costs more than you want to pay. This is what I want us to know tonight. Like, remember this. Samson did not wreck his life all at once. Samson wrecked his life one step at a time. Samson wrecked his life one lie at a time. And if I've said anything tonight that just makes you think, you know what, I've bought into that lie. The goal is not to have guilt or shame or condemnation sit on you. The goal is rather to go, you know, I have to do battle with that. I actually have to address that. I have to address the lies I'm beginning to believe because here's the best part of the story. This verse it's so easy to skip it. Like, Samson, he's in trouble. Things aren't going well. Eventually, Samson is going to die. But here's what I want you to see in verse 22. Immediately after this happens, verse 22, it says, but the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. What does the hair on his head symbolize? It means when his hair is growing on his head, God gives him superhuman strength. When hair is growing on his head, God is going to protect him. You know what one of the most beautiful things in the world is? That God isn't done with a sinner like Samson. And if God isn't done with a sinner like Samson, let me speak this over someone in this room who needs to hear it. God is not done with a sinner like you. He's not done with you. And some of you have just convinced yourself that God is sick of you. He's tired of you. He's tired of forgiving you. Our God has limitless forgiveness for you. He will never give up. He will never fail. His covenant faithfulness will stay over you despite all of your sin and all of your failure and all of your addiction. I just need to speak to the young man here who's hooked on pornography and thinks God would never forgive someone like me. Yes, he will. That is exactly what Jesus hung and bled and died on the cross for, for your forgiveness. I just need to knock that lie out of your head that God's sick of you because he is not sick of you. He looks on you and says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I need to speak to the young lady in this room who feels like your past is too bad. It's too damaged. No one would ever want you because of what you've done or what's been done to you. I just want to remove that lie from your mind and know that God calls you chosen and holy and dearly loved. He looks at you and says, you are my daughter. You are part of my family. I love you. I adore you. I see you for who you are and he is not sick of you. I just need someone to know God is not disgusted with you. And some of you have bought into this idea that God is so done with you and he is not. God's not done with a sinner like Samson. He's not done with a sinner like me. So here's how I want to close tonight. Um, I want to give you five truths to cling to. We're called to hate to what is evil, but to cling to what is good. And um, I'll roll through these pretty quickly. Um, but these are things to meditate on, think on, uh, maybe to study on your own. The first is uh, our memory verse for tonight, Galatians 5.18. Just this is truth number one, that you would walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I think the most important thing when it comes to waging war against your sin is this principle, that if you focus on your sin, you will always lose. Set your eyes on your sin and you will always lose. Set your eyes on Jesus and victory is yours, right? That's where it comes from. Victory does not come from you micromanaging your sin and thinking about your sin all the time and trying really hard not to sin. Anytime you do that, even if you win, you also lose because that's self-sufficiency, right? 
But when I set my eyes on Jesus, that's how I find freedom. When I'm filled with the Spirit, when I am obsessed with being filled with God's presence, that's how I find victory. That's truth number one. Walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Here's truth number two. It comes out of the Proverbs. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. <clears throat> like a city without walls is a person who lacks self-control. Um, here's what I want to talk to you about. I've been talking all night about sexual sin. I, I want to talk to you about self-control in total. So here's what some people believe, that they can have no self-control when it comes to food or alcohol or their phone or the words that come out of their mouth, but suddenly they'll be able to master themselves when it comes to sexuality. Listen, self-control doesn't work that way. You either become someone who is walking by this fruit of the Spirit called self-control, or you don't. And so for some of you, the addressing of your sexual sin might actually start with the fact that you spend 14 hours a day on your phone, even though you don't want to. It might actually start with you saying no to the next drink someone offers you because you have self-control. But listen, I don't want us to be a people who think we can suddenly control our sexuality and be out of control everywhere else in our lives. That is like a city without walls is a person who is without self-control. Here's truth number three. I love this verse in scripture. Paul is talking, he says, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried. You know, one of the most shocking things about the Bible is the Bible says it's actually good for you to be single. And here's what I know. Any single people in the house, any unmarried folk, oh, the largest singles ministry at Calvary. Paul actually says it's good for you to stay unmarried, but, and he throws in the big butt here, but if they cannot control themselves, this is what we've been talking about tonight. Like if sexual sin is overtaking you, what should you do? You should get married. It is better for you to marry than to burn with passion. Now, this is like a verse in the Bible that so often just gets like tossed out. It's like, okay, if I'm struggling with sexual sin, what should I do? You should get married. And you're like, what? Come on. Like, and, and listen, it's not because if you get married, sexual sin won't be a temptation. It will be. And it's not because getting married is easy. Like I know I read this verse and some of you are like, I have been waiting and I am available, right? <laughs> like, like, like here's what I want to speak to though. I want to speak to the people in the room who have punted the idea of marriage until like way later in life. And here's the deal. I got no issue with that. If you're like walking in holiness and you're good and you're actually content, not like the Christian content, like I just feel so good. And at the same time, you're like, who can I marry? You know, like no, no, the actual good, right? If you feel that way, that's awesome. I, I got people in my life, friends and family who have been married in their 30s and 40s and they love it. I just want to kind of push back gently against this idea that in your 20s, you're supposed to build your life and have the best time and build your career and do all the fun things, travel the world, and then in your 30s, get married. I, I just want to tell you getting married young was awesome for me. I just want to tell you what the Bible is going to say is that if you are young and you are struggling with sexual sin, one of the best things for you to do is find a spouse so that there is a context for that sexuality to be expressed in a healthy and a beautiful way. I just want to push back against the idea that marriage is some kind of trap. No, marriage is a beautiful gift of God. And some of you will never get married and God will use you in amazing ways. And some of you will get married later in life and that is a beautiful love story. But for some of you, you've bought into the narrative of our culture that you're not supposed to get married till way later in life. And I just want you to know you're the first generation in history to try that one out. That's just not the case. Like in biblical times, people are married like 14, 15, 16. I'm not saying like high schoolers should get married right now. Like Lord, no. But, <laughs> but I'm also saying that I think some people look down on the idea of getting married young in such a way that ignores the actual wisdom of the Bible. Listen, the idea that you're going to go through puberty at like 13, 14, and like not have any sexual sin until you're like 40, is just, it's just, it's not what the Bible is teaching. So again, um, if you are walking away, we're going like, Brian says, if you're not married young, you're bad. No, like, that's not what I'm saying. 
I'm saying that there are some beautiful stories where people get married a little older or a little younger. And I know some of you would just be hungry for that story of getting married. And I don't want to heap shame on you. I just want to be a person who's constantly lifting up marriage as this beautiful, good thing, rather than this odd thing that we're supposed to reject in our culture. Does that make sense? Like, that's all I'm trying to do. And I'm trying to say that one of the Bible's responses to how do I deal with my sexual sin is pursue a husband or a wife and get married. And that's a beautiful thing, not something to be ashamed of wanting. Truth number four here says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you might be healed. James 5, 16. I just want to remind you tonight that healing happens in community. Healing happens in relationship. Healing happens in therapy. If you've got this idea, like I've got this deep, dark sexual sin, I will box out everyone in the world and I will conquer this on my own. That fails 100% of the time. Drag your sin into the light. Tell someone about it. Healing happens in community. When you speak it out loud, it loses its power. If you are struggling in the dark, I plead with you, find someone you can tell. Someone, anyone, drag it into the light. Why? We confess our sins to each other and that's where we're healed. Band, you can make your way up. We'll close with some songs tonight. Here's what we're gonna say. Truth number five is, it's number five. This is the words of Jesus. He says, I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you know why Jesus came into this world? He did not come to save the righteous. He came to call sinners. Can I put it a different way? God did not come to call the righteous. He came to call the porn addicts. He came to call those who have a spotty past. He came to call those who are Christians and yet struggling crossing lines in their relationships. God came into this world. Jesus came into this world to rescue and save folks like me who struggled in the darkness for years. And he came to save folks like you who love Jesus and yet are walking in this kind of darkness and sexual sin, Jesus does not look at you and say, I am disgusted with you. He looks at you and says, I love you. I want you in my family. I want you healed and whole. I want to welcome you into this thing. That's what Jesus came to do. And I just want you to cling to that truth because I know that tonight can stir up guilt and shame and fear. I know that tonight I said some things and you might just be feeling all kinds of gross inside, but I want you to know that the God of the universe and Jesus Christ sees that gross and says, I want that. I want her. I want him. I want them in my family and I would pay for them to be in my family with my son's blood. That's how much God loves you. Like tonight, if you walk away with nothing, I want you to know that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is God's goodness and his grace and his mercy toward us. So would you know that tonight? Would you experience that? We're about to sing a song. Um, and, and the bridge of the song says these words, I love them. It says, your love so deep is washing over me. Your face is all I seek. You are my everything. Jesus Christ, you are my one desire. Lord, hear my cry to know me all my life. The love of God is like an ocean that you are drowning in right now. You don't even know how deeply God loves you, how much God is for you. And yet this is who God is. He's for you. He's with you. He is on your side. And if you are walking in something that is just crushing you tonight, I want you to know that there's freedom available for you, not on your own strength, but on the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Can I pray for you? Father in heaven, thanks for tonight. Thanks for the opportunity to know you, to trust you, to walk with you. God, I just understand that in this room, there's all kinds of stories, all kinds of pain, all kinds of trauma, all kinds of addiction, all kinds of shame, all kinds of stories. And I pray tonight as we stand and sing in just a few moments here, that even in the act of singing and worshiping and setting our eyes on you all our life, that you would bring healing to this room, that you would bring freedom to this room, that you would allow us to overcome these things that are just wrecking and ruining us on the inside. So God, I pray against shame. I pray against any kind of guilt. I pray against anyone who misunderstands this to be some kind of earning their salvation before you. I pray against all of that. May your Holy Spirit wipe out the lies in this room and instead fill it with truth. 
God, help us to know your truth. Help us to know your son. We pray it in his name and all God's people said, amen.